plants have a defense system against being eaten. They do not want to be eaten and they do not want their babies, their seeds eaten. And they use, among other things, proteins that are called sticky proteins, called lectins, which have been very nicely shown to pry open the spaces between the uh, enterocytes, the lining of our gut. And they are foreign proteins and our immune system views them as foreign proteins and reacts accordingly. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Stephen Gundry. Dr. Gundry is one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons and a pioneer in nutrition, as well as the medical director at the International Heart and Lung Institute Center for Restorative Medicine. He spent the last two decades studying the microbiome, and he helps his current patients use diet and nutrition as a key form of treatment. He's the author of many New York Times bestselling books, including The Plant Paradox, The Plant Paradox Cookbook, The Longevity Paradox, How to Die Young at a Ripe Old Age, and his most recent book, which is what we dive into, The Energy Paradox, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Got Up and Gone. He's also the founder of Gundry MD, which is a line of wellness products and supplements and host of the Dr. Gundry podcast. And as you might infer from that introduction, there is a lot of similarities and parallels in our philosophy. And we talk about energy and the lack thereof today. So we talk about some of the underlying factors that influence energy production, including our microbiome, including time-restricted eating, including postbiotics, so the short-chain fatty acids and the gasotransmitters that our microbiome use as signaling molecules and hormones. We talk about how inflammation steals your energy, and we talk about the three L's of inflammation, leaky gut, lectins, and lipopolysaccharides, or LPS. And you'll see that Dr. Gundry has a very interesting acronym for LPS. He uses a couple of choice words uh, for LP and S, which you will see. And then we talk about the mitochondria. Of course, we talk about the Uh, mechanistic consequences of oxidative stress, inflammation, and how our mitochondria respond to uh, an enter when we are inflamed and when there is inflammation in the body. We talk about the mitochondrial role in sex sex steroidogenesis, which is the um, creation of our sex hormones. We talk about metabolic flexibility. We talk about melatonin and the mitochondria. And we talk about the seven deadly energy disruptors. And we talk, we go through a few of them and some solutions for your overall health and well-being. And of course, your ability to use and to use energy and to produce it. And we talk about this in the context of the brain, in the context of the gut, tools like fasting, which he calls chrono consumption, and much, much more. Now, Dr. Gundry is in his seventh decade and is, as you will hear, a an abundance of energy, uh, mental clarity abound, very uh, well thought out, has really done a lot of work in the field of nutrition, in the field of the microbiome, and is making a difference. And it was such an honor to speak to him. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen Gundry. 
I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Well, Bettys, today I am so excited. I have Dr. Stephen Gundry on the podcast. Dr. Gundry, welcome to the Better Podcast. Thank you very much for having me and good to see you again. Yes, I was just recently on your uh, podcast, The Dr. Gundry Show, uh, and I'm excited to have this uh, reci- you know, this reciprocal conversation because it was I had a great time on your pod and I just have a feeling after reading your book and really understanding your body of work, we're going to have a great time today. Very good. So I wanted to, I wanted to start with your origin story and I'm a little bit of a superhero nerd. I love, you know, I like the term origin story because I think it talks about superheroes and you're, you're, you're so interesting in that you are a cardiothoracic surgeon by training. Um, and you know, over your, you know, you've gone through your schooling, performed over 10,000, you know, procedures, and now you're known as this pioneer in nutrition, you know, uh, uh, subject matter expert on the microbiome. So I guess my, my opening question to you here is how does a cardiothoracic surgeon get interested in energy uh, and in nutrition? How does, how does that path come about? Well, so um, as strange as it may seem, back in the dark ages when I was an undergraduate at Yale University, we were allowed to design our own major. And um, so I we would select a thesis and my thesis was you could take a great ape and manipulate its food supply and manipulate its environment and prove that you would arrive at a human being. And yeah. so that was my thesis. And I spent uh, four years uh, researching that thesis and had to defend my thesis and got an honors in it. Um, and then I gave my thesis to my parents and uh, it's actually up there on my bookshelf. Um, so anyhow, and I went off to become a very famous heart surgeon. And then over 20 years ago now, uh, I was uh, chairman and professor of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University here in Southern California. And I was famous for operating on people that nobody else wanted to, among other things. And I was uh, confronted by a gentleman who I call Big Ed in all my books, a, a real person uh, from Miami, uh, Florida, 48 years old, inoperable coronary artery disease. That means his blood vessels were so clogged up that you couldn't put stents in them. You couldn't do bypasses because there wasn't any place to land a bypass. And people like Big Ed would go around the country uh, to various medical centers looking for an idiot like me to operate on him. And he was turned down by five, five other places. And it took him about six months to um, visit me. And I looked at his angiogram, the catheterization of his heart and that had been done in Miami six months earlier. And I said, well, you know, I hate to tell you this, but I agree with everybody else. I can't can't help you. I'd love to. And he said, well, look, uh, that's what everybody says. But I've been on a diet for the last six months and I've lost 45 pounds. Now, the reason he's called Big Ed, he was 265 pounds when I met him. And he says, and I've gone to a health food store and I've taken all these supplements. And he literally had brought in a giant shopping bag full of supplements. And he says, you know, maybe I did something here in my heart. And I'm scratching my professor beard and going, well, you know, good for you, uh, Ed, uh, but it's not going to help anything, you know, great for you losing weight, but nothing's going to change in there. And he said, well, come on, what would it hurt to get another angiogram? And I'm going, yeah, okay, fine. You came all this way. Let's do it. 
In six months time, this guy has cleaned out 50% of all the blockages in his heart, gone. And I'd never seen anything like that, never seen it described. And next thing I know, I'm going, tell me about this diet and let me look at those supplements. And as he starts describing the diet, I went, wait a minute, uh, that's the thesis I did at Yale on what our ancestors ate. And I, interestingly enough, was a big fat guy back then, even though I was running 30 miles a week and going to the gym one hour a day and eating healthy, low fat diet. And I said, you know, I called my parents and I said, Hey, you know, do you have my thesis? And they said, Oh yeah. yeah here in the shrine. Um, <laughs> Eternal flame, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I said, send it up to me. So, and then I looked through Big Ed supplements, and I was famous for keeping hearts alive during heart transplant, during surgery, and I was putting interesting chemicals into the hearts to protect them. And a lot of these things that I was putting down veins and arteries, Ed, Big Ed was swallowing, and I had never it had never occurred to me to swallow these things that would protect the heart. And so I started following my program. I started, I lost 50 pounds my first year. Uh, and I started putting patients who I operated on, on my program. And lo and behold, their diabetes would go away. Their high blood pressure would go away. Their arthritis would go away. And after about a year of this, I, I looked in the mirror one Friday and I said, you know, I've got this all wrong. Uh, I, instead of operating on somebody and teaching them how to eat, I should teach them how to eat and then I won't have to operate on them. Now, for a heart surgeon, that's a really dumb uh, decision, uh, career choice. But uh, I resigned my position and opened a clinic in Palm Springs where I just asked people to be my research project. And we'd get blood work every three months that insurance would cover. And we'd send them to Costco or Trader Joe's or the health food store to buy some supplements. And I started publishing my data at the American Heart Association. And then I started writing books about it. And the rest is history. So, you know, what a dumb thing for a heart surgeon to do. Um, but you know, Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago that all disease begins in the gut. And he didn't have any of the sophisticated blood tests that we have now, but he was absolutely right. And um, that's confirmed every day that, that I see patients. And I, I still see patients actually six days a week. Um, I see patients on the weekends. Um, on Fridays, uh, I'm at Gundry MD, my uh, supplement and food company. So I, I uh, at 71 years old, work seven days a week, whether I want to or not. And I want to because every day I'm like a kid in a candy store because I get to see somebody who changes their life just with food and maybe a few supplements. It's really fun. It's really interesting. I think that so many that we have a lot of practitioners that listen to this podcast. And I think that there's always like big ed for you. What it, Sometimes our patients are our greatest teachers, right? We can go oh, yeah. in to school and come out with, I'll call it a little bit of hubris, thinking that we know everything. We have the letters now behind our name and we have the, maybe the technical skill and we've been certified by our board and our licensing bodies. But sometimes our patients, uh, you know, in their own special way, as big ed has for you said, Hey, you know what? I'm taking these things. You don't have to put them in my veins. Like I can, I can just take them in supplement form. And I also just want to honor uh, for a moment how profound it is for, and we've had many, um, I don't want to call them defects, but maybe defects from the allopathic traditional model on the show where we've had, uh, you know, surgeons such as yourself, medical practicing medical doctors who felt like there was uh, some kind of cognitive dissonance between their training and what they were seeing out on the field. And I truly, every single health practitioner, irrespective of the, you know, the letters behind your name, we get into this because we want to help people. We want to, as medical doctors, you want to help your patients. And I think that for you to say, Hey, you know what, maybe financially not, you know, not the smartest <laughs> thing to, you know, give up surgery because we know how you know lucrative and profitable that can be. Um, but 
I think that it's, it's, it's the honorable choice. And I just, I, I wanted to just take a moment and, and express that to you because it is, a, it's a huge thing to leave your years of training and the teachers and the mentors and the standards of care that you have to say, Hey, you know what, this isn't working for me anymore. I need to create my own path. Yeah. It's uh, you know, it's interesting. We, we get to have, um, third year family practice residents uh, rotate through our clinic for a month. And it's, and so they're about, you know, this is their final year before going out into practice and to a person, number one, they've, they've never been exposed to what I call restorative medicine. Some people call it functional medicine. I don't care, but, um, and they've, they've never been exposed to actually some of the tests that are available. And, after a month, they go, oh, my gosh, you know, this is this is what I want to do. This is why I went into medicine. And, you know, this is exciting. And, you know, look what's happening to these people. And wow. And so they go to their advisor and they go, oh, you know, I'm I'm going to do this. And their advisor, they, they come back, like several people in tears. And their advisor says, no, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Um, you've got to see 40 to 60 patients a day for 10 minutes each. And you got to write out, you know, eight prescriptions. And if you don't, you're never going to pay off your $200,000 uh, medical stu stu student loan. And you're going to starve and have a nice day. And uh, literally a couple of them come back in tears and say, uh, you know, uh, that's not fair. You know, this is, you know, I went into medicine to do this, just like you said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So hopefully doctors like you are paving the way for permission for this to happen more and more. And in that, I want to, I want to talk about the book. So the energy paradox is your latest in a series of many wonderful books, the plant paradox, longevity paradox. And I think it's such an important topic because, and I love your subtitles what to do when your get up and go has got up and gone, because it's so true. Even 30 and 40 and 50, like we are zapped. We have no energy. And it's, it's interesting because we're in a society now where food is, you know, a couple of, you know, Uber Eats, it's in 30 minutes, or you can just hop in your car, run to the, you know, we're, it's not that we have a, you know, food shortage, um, but we have a energy shortage. So let's start by talking about how we got here. How has our get up and go got up and gone? How has, how, how have we come to this place? Well, I think there's several factors, but perhaps uh, one of the most important ones is that the way we eat uh, has has totally changed. Um, if you if you look back to my great grandparents, uh, they ate number one whole food, uh, they, and they ate their whole food whole. And one of the things that we have done as a society, particularly in the West, is most of the food we eat, even if we consider them whole foods, they have been processed and ultra processed so that uh, we now have bars or foods that consist of simple sugars, simple amino acids instead of complex proteins, and simple fats that instead of kind of arriving uh, at our mitochondria, the energy processing organelles and most of our cells in a staggered basis, sugars first, protein second, fats later, they now actually arrive simultaneously. Uh, and I, since I live in the LA area, liken that to rush hour in LA. And so you have you know, all these food substances, which would normally kind of trickle in for processing, arriving with this giant mush, uh, trying to get into the freeways for processing, which is our mitochondria. And what happens is that all of this stuff arriving simultaneously results in a traffic jam and absolutely nothing moves and energy doesn't get made at all. So this whole idea of, oh, I'm going to eat an energy snack or, you know, I'm going to I'm going to have 20 grams of a protein shake or I'm going to have a fruit smoothie to give me energy. In fact, it has the exact opposite effect of what was intended. And in the book, we go through in a very nerdy way of Here's, you know, here's what happens. Here's why this is happening. And, you know, here's how to stop it. 
So that's number one. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting because in the book you talk, you compare modern life in, you know, a North American or Western society with some of the centenarians and super centenarians in the Mediterranean. Uh, you talk about Italy. Um, I would include Greece in there and the, uh, hunter gatherer, uh, Hazda, uh, tribe as well. And it's interesting because you talk about this idea that the energy output is actually very similar between someone who lives in Los Angeles and, you know, uh, maybe a, a 90 year old who is, you know, herding goats or something in, in on the, you know, mountain of, you know, some beautiful Italian mountaintop. Sardinia. <laughs> in, in Sardinia. Exactly. So what is, what is the difference? And, you know, we never have, and I, you know, and I have, um, uh, been very close to the Greek culture, very close to the Italian and Portuguese culture. And they never come in at the end of the day and they're like, oh, I just need to like Netflix and chill, you know, like, where's the beer? Like, they don't do that. They, they herd their goats and their sheep all day long. Um, and there's, there's no, um, energy paradox there. So what is the difference? What is happening between some of these other societies that are seemingly living in parallel to us, um, but have extremely different, um, uh, outcomes? Yeah, it's interesting. I, and I talk about this in the book. I had the um, researchers from Duke who uh, wrote a paper about the Hadzas and uh, compared them to desk workers in terms of their energy expenditure. And their their hypothesis was that, well, the Hadzas are this you know, primitive, uh, one of the last hunter-gatherers on Earth. The men walk eight to 10 miles every day. The women walk four to five miles gathering tubers and berries and beehives. And they're thin, they're fit. They have no diseases um, that, of Western you know, life. And the hypothesis was, wow, we're going to measure the energy expenditure of these guys and it's going to be really high. And that's why they're so thin and they're so healthy. And we're going to compare them to American desk workers. And lo and behold, when they looked at the energy expenditure between the two groups, it was virtually identical. The guys sitting at the desk were expending as much energy as these guys walking you know, 10 miles a day. And, you know, as a researcher all my life, uh, when you have a hypothesis that you don't prove, you're supposed to say, oops, hypothesis is wrong. But many times we make an excuse, uh, unfortunately. And we say, oh, well, uh, all people have the exact same amount of energy expenditure, no matter what, what they do. And, you know, when I read that paper, I said, this does not pass the sniff test. And so I looked at my own patient population. And when I would first see people, um, there's a diagnosis code that you may be aware of called fatigue and malaise and basically tired. And 50% of the people who came in my office for whatever reason uh, would get that code because that was one of their complaints, being tired, being lack of energy. And that would go away rather, rather quickly. And when I decided to write this book, I said, you know, I need to write about energy because I watch it go away. So what was happening to these people? Well, when we look at their markers of inflammation, they're always high um, when we come in. With more sophisticated tests now, we know that that inflammation is actually coming from leaky gut. And that is not a pseudoscience anymore. It is a real thing. Uh, Dr. Alessio Fasano, now at Harvard, was first to prove how gluten, which is a lectin, is capable of causing uh, intestinal permeability, leaky gut, and that intestinal permeability causes inflammation and is the source of, in my humble opinion, almost all inflammation within us. So when we look at those desk workers, inflammation takes a huge amount of energy. Our immune system, if we think of them as our troops, requires huge amounts of fuel to battle the perceived enemies coming across our border. And that energy, which would normally go to our muscles and normally go to our brains, which are the traditional energy hogs, now is being taken by our immune system to produce inflammation. And so when you start looking at it with, with this picture, you go, 
Well, no wonder their energy expenditure is the same as the Hadza's, but it's being stolen from the brain and from the muscles where it ought to be used. And no wonder we're exhausted and tired. And so, uh, and no wonder when people started to eat the way I asked them to do, their energy came back, their tiredness went away. I, I love that. I think I, I agree with you 100% here. Inflammation is an energy vampire. And as you just, you know, so eloquently explained, your substrate, the, 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 you know, the precursors that might go into creating ATP are now being diverted, as you mentioned, to, to be able to have these immune systems do their, their, their job. And I think that this is, you know, in my book, in your book, it's, it's chapter two in your book. And it's, you know, what I was really happy to see that I, my, in my uh, own book, I, inflammation was chapter two as well, because before you go down the rabbit hole of sex hormones and candida and, you know, SIBO and virus, you have to deal with the inflammation. And you t- you've already touched on one, uh, talking about, or actually you've, you've mentioned two, the, the L's that you call them, the three L's of inflammation. So you've already mentioned um, leaky gut, leaky gut. Um, intestinal hyperpermeability. Let's talk, let's touch a little bit on lectins. I know you mentioned it briefly, but explain to my audience what a lectin is and why we want to be pay, paying attention to these proteins and what's happening. Yeah, so uh, plants uh, were here first. Um, There's a whole they, other book that you've written, by the way. There's a whole other book, so we won't, you know, we can be we here forever. We won't go there, but yeah, we yeah. can be there forever. <laughs> yeah. So plants have a defense system against being eaten. They do not want to be eaten, and they do not want their babies, their seeds eaten. And they use, among other things, proteins that are called sticky proteins, called lectins, which have been very nicely shown to pry open these spaces between the uh, enterocytes, the lining of our gut. And they are foreign proteins. And our immune system views them as foreign proteins and reacts accordingly. So gluten just happens to be a lectin, but there are plenty of others in most grains. The only non-lectin-containing grains are sorghum and millet, by the way. They're present in beans and legumes, but you can use a pressure cooker to destroy the lectins in beans and lentils. They're in the nightshade family. Uh, Some of our favorite vegetables, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, um, potatoes, all part of the nightshade family. And by the way, so are goji berries. And I hate to break people's heart, but uh, peanuts and cashews uh, are loaded with lectins. So these are capable of really making leaky gut. I just got off the phone with one of my patients uh, earlier today who um, had leaky gut. We got it repaired, their autoimmune disease that they presented with resolved. And then on their new tests, a number of markers of leaky gut were back. And I went, what the heck? You know, where's this coming from? And they said, oh, um, we've been experimenting. My wife and I, uh, we're into oat milk and we're using oat milk lattes and we're drinking oat milk. And I go, what the heck? I, I <laughs> why? Said, yeah, why would you do that? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's on the list. It's loaded. The oats, oats have a have a lectin that cross reacts with gluten. Your body cannot tell the difference between the lectin and oats and the and the gluten lectin. And they go, oh yeah, uh, you know we forgot. I'm so glad we did this test. You know, bye. Well, you know, and it's that sort of thing. Yeah. So. And then the third L is lipopolysaccharides or LPS for short. You have a different acronym. You have a different name for them. Maybe you want to explain what uh, LPS is and uh, why we need to be paying attention to this one as well. Yeah. So uh, lipopolysaccharides are the cell wall of certain bacteria that live in our gut. And they're primarily what I call the gang members. Uh, There's good guys in your gut and gang members in your gut. And the gang members happen to love simple sugars and saturated fats. And when they grow and divide, they have leftover dead bodies that the cell wall is called a lipopolysaccharide. Now it's a hard tongue twister. So it's abbreviated LPS. uh, And what I call them are little pieces of shit, (laughs) because quite frankly, that's exactly what they are. 
Now, they're not living bacteria, but our immune system actually reads the barcode on this cell wall of bacteria and thinks it's a living bacteria. And the weird thing about these guys is that they can get through leaky gut all by themselves, but they can ride on primarily saturated fat molecules that are in this carrier called a chylomicron and ride across the wall of our gut where they are recognized by our immune system that starts the inflammation. And one of the sad things that most people, even on a ketogenic diet, are not aware of is that uh, the ketogenic diet done, quote, the old-fashioned way with huge amounts of saturated fats is a really good way to produce inflammation because these little pieces of shit get a free ride into your body. And unfortunately, I see that all the time. And uh, my next book, which we just put to bed actually yesterday, um, called uh, Un Unlocking the Keto Code, uh, that's actually part of why most ketogenic diets uh, fail. Yeah, it's dirty keto. That's what I like to call it. It's dirty. Yeah, dirty it's like, keto. <laughs> I, you know, I always like it's bacon, butter, burgers and repeat, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the microbiome in general. This is what you are very well known for. And I want to also um, parse this with a, with a discussion around the mitochondria, because I don't think we can have a conversation around the microbiome and the body in general without touching on that. But you talk about this uh, and related to healing the microbiome. So we have these, we have leaky gut, we have lectins, we have LPS, all of them are eroding these, uh, these patches or the, the, you know, the tight junctions of the uh, endothelial lining, uh, the enterocytes. And you talk about this fiber paradox, which I think is, in, and, you know, talking about keto, I think this is a great time to bring it up around talking about different types of foods that, we can use that are very keto friendly, but will help to uh, attenuate some of the, these three L's that we've been talking about. So talk to us about what the fiber paradox is and then how we can, you know, in a solution oriented way, begin to, um, you know, select certain types of fibers for their uh, properties in, in gut healing. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a, uh, a quite a famous English surgeon by the name of Dennis Burkett who was a colon surgeon and uh, he was he went on a mission trip to Africa uh, wanting to go help the Africans with uh, their colon needs. And when he got down there, uh, he was shocked that there wasn't any colon cancer to operate on and there weren't any hemorrhoids uh, to operate on. And he's going, well, what the heck? You know, what am I doing down here? Um, and he was curious and he says, well, why isn't there any colon cancer and hemorrhoids? And he started following these tribes back in the bush and they were they had giant poops. And he just became obsessed with these bowel movements of these Africans living in the bush. And he says, oh, my gosh, you know, why are these poops so giant? And he started looking at what they were eating and they were eating all sorts of fibrous foods, tubers. And he says, wow. It's the fiber that these guys are eating that are making these giant poops. And I think it's the fiber that's not having colon cancer and hemorrhoids. So he gets back to England and he says, I've discovered why this has happened. And unfortunately, the English didn't have a whole lot of what's called soluble fiber, uh, but they had plenty of insoluble fiber in the forms of grain, the hulls of grains like wheat, like oats, like barley, like rye. And he says, eh, fiber is fiber. Uh, you need to eat a high fiber diet and that'll be all you need. Well, he didn't realize that insoluble fiber that are in the halls of grains are lectins and is one of the best ways to actually produce leaky gut. But now we realize that it's insoluble fiber that gut bacteria, number one, have to have, the good guys have to have it to eat. Most of our processed foods have been totally devoid of any soluble fiber. And to allude to what you just said, most ketogenic diets, the traditional ketogenic diets are pretty much devoid of soluble fiber. And what we've learned now is, so these are prebiotic fibers. 
Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. We now know that the gut microbiome not only has to have these to live, but the gut microbiome takes these fibers, and I laugh that they poop out <coughs> what are now called postbiotics. So we have probiotics, friendly bacteria. <coughs> we have prebiotics, what the friendly bacteria like to eat. It turns out that a Nobel Prize for Medicine was won with the discovery of postbiotics and what they actually do. And there is a language that's been discovered between our gut microbiome and our mitochondria and our brain that is literally a communication system that are postbiotics. And these are short chain fatty acids like butyrate, for instance, and acetate, and also gases. And these gases, we've, you know, are embarrassing farts, if you will, but it turns out these gases are not just embarrassing byproducts. They actually are how the microbiome communicates to us and actually, if you will, controls what happens to us. And a lot of people um, do not like the thought that the most advanced organism in the world, supposedly us, can be controlled by one cell organisms. And I'm sorry, get over it. Uh, our fate is intrinsically tied to the fate of our microbiome. And the sooner we realize that, like Hippocrates did 2,500 years ago, the better off we're all going to be. Yeah, we are just but a container. Right. <laughs> we are just a container for our microbiome, truly. Yeah, I, I, I love what you're saying. It's so, it, it was so interesting to me to read. So I've always been a big proponent of butyrate and you were you know talking about your new uh, book I'm, I'm very excited to read it one of the things that I have often noticed is people can't stay on a ketogenic diet this sort of mono, diet for a long period of time. And I've like, it's around the two or three week mark. People fought, they're like, it doesn't matter how many fat I just need a carbohydrate. And that's this distress signal coming up from the microbiome saying we're starving. We've had no fiber. We need, we need you to have some carbohydrates right now. So it's, it's a, you know, it's been shown to be a very powerful attenuator of cravings, but you, and so that might be good in terms of a clinical application of keto, but you go into a lot more detail in the book and talk about how it's a primary fuel source for our colon cells, how it's, it signals these anti-inflammatory pathways that, you know, helps with sleep and reparation of the gut line. Like you go into all of this detail, um, which I think is so fascinating and one of the things I and I learned from your book was this idea of gasotransmitters. So let's talk a little bit, you know, the, you know, the, un, you know, the uncouth, you know, the uh, uncivilized, let's talk about hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, methane. Let's talk about those and the role that they play in the microbiome and, and its health. Yeah. You know, like I say in the book, I want people to step on the gas and we, you know, in, in some cultures, uh, particularly in the Middle East, uh, it is uh, a sign of respect for the chef to actually break wind at the table. Um, and we've, we've got to, you know, we've got to get away from the idea that these are just unpleasant side effects. And so there's an entire science now of gasotransmitters, uh, hydrogen gas, for instance, the, mo the smallest molecule there is, the most diffusible gas there is, uh, hydrogen sulfide, the rotten egg smoke, uh, 
Uh, there's, and I talk about it in the book, there's some actually phenomenally interesting papers that hydrogen sulfide in the right amount may actually prevent atherosclerosis. And uh, yeah, just, you know, we used to, when I was in medical school, we were all taught that hydrogen sulfide is a toxic gas, you know, a sewer gas. And it's true that you could kill somebody with hydrogen sulfide. But what we've learned about all of these- Well, you can also is, kill someone with oxygen. <laughs> uh, exactly. You can right? do a good, yeah. So these are hormetic uh, gases and uh, the, there's a hormetic curve. That which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And so hydrogen, I think there's a phenomenal- a study out of Japan, which I think really can help us understand how important this is. They looked at people with Parkinson's in Japan and they looked at their microbiome and they found that their microbiome was unable to produce hydrogen gas. And they compared that to normal people's microbiome and they found that sure enough, they produced hydrogen gas. So in a series of experiments, they gave Parkinson's patients hydrogen water, which is hydrogen gas dissolved in water. And I make a tablet at Gundry MD that you can do that, but plenty of other people do too. But so they gave them hydrogen water and lo and behold, their Parkinson's symptoms got better just by the exposure to hydrogen. And hydrogen is an incredibly important component of the electron transport chain in making ATP. And it's like, Son of a gun, you know, we, we need the hydrogen produced by our microbiome to make our mitochondria work properly. And if it's not around, guess what? The mitochondria in your brain are going to falter. And wow. Um, so, so we now have hydrogen gas. We have hydrogen sulfide, which requires sulfur molecules. And that's why, by the way, all these cruciferous vegetables are so important for energy production. And, and they smell up your fridge if they've been there for too long. But that's, that's the sulfur in it. That's the sulfur in it. Yeah. And we, we joke, uh, we're a carbon-based life form. Uh, but sulfur uh, could actually, there, there's probably a sulfur-based life form uh, somewhere in the world. It can be, it can substitute perfectly for carbon. And sulfur is, if you don't have enough sulfur in you, you're going to sputter to a stop, but that's a whole other subject. So, you know, hydrogen sulfide gas. Methane, it turns out, is actually an incredibly important gas in our body as a messenger. It's not greenhouse gases. Um, it could be, but not for us. And what's really fascinating is that there are numerous other gases that we're just now beginning to figure out how they work. For instance, carbon dioxide. It turns out the carbon dioxide isn't just exhaled gas, but its level has really important uh, effects on how neurons function. And I talk about that in the upcoming book. So that's why, just as a tease, breath work, breath holding is actually probably really good for heightened consciousness. Let's just put it that way. I and love it's the that. effect, it's the effect of carbon dioxide. And, you know, really some of the, one of the things I will often tell my patients is we breathe out most of our fat. Like when you are, you know, when you are losing weight or you're losing adipose tissue, tissue which is the weight you want to lose, you don't want to use muscle tissue or organ. This happens through this uh, respiratory uh, exchange. So yes, love everything that you're saying here around that. And I'm so ex I can't wait for your next book. You have to come back on the pod for, for the right. next one. March. Right, so let, in March, let, let's talk a little bit about the mitochondria. We've been dancing around it a little bit, talking about how um, these signaling molecules, um, you know, or when we eat these processed foods, we get this like 403, like we get the traffic jam on the highway. Um, and of course, we know that, or most of us may recall um, from high school biology that mitochondria are the primary, uh, you know, we call them the battery packs. They make our adenosine triphosphate, which is the, which is energy. Um, and we've been talking about some of the things that affect, that affect them, but what I think you've done so well in the book is explaining some of the mechanistic consequences of things like oxidative stress, inflammation. And what I'd love for you to do, 
uh, if you can, is to explain how our mitochondria respond. Because they're not just these little mindless ATP producing um, generators. They're also sensing the environment. They're talking to each other. Um, And when we see things like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or burnout, often um, what we also see is things like ATP leaking out of the mitochondria, this purinergic signaling where the mitochondria are talking to each other and like, hey, this is danger. Like this is not a good environment to producing energy. We need to shut down. Can you, can you walk us through a little bit about what happens to the mitochondria when it's under too much inflammation and stress? I've been presenting at the uh, World Congress of Microbiota every year, except during COVID, in Paris. And the organizer of that meeting is a professor in Paris uh, by the name of Marvin Edes. And a number of years ago, he took me aside and he says, um, you know, the microbiome talks to the mitochondria. And I said, well, I believe you, but, you know, why haven't we, you know, discussed Discovered that language. He says, we will, they, but they send text messages to the mitochondria. And I said, well, well, how do you know? He said, well, mitochondria are engulfed bacteria. Two billion years ago, uh, ancient primordial cells ate a bacteria. And rather than destroying it, I guess the bacteria said, hey, if you let me live, uh, I'll produce energy for you as long as I have a nice place and you give me a little food to eat. Deal? And that made the eukaryotic cell, which makes us and almost all living life forms, complex life forms, possible. It turns out that we inherit our microbiome from our mother, and we inherit our mitochondrial DNA from our mother. Um, Sorry, I'm a guy. Uh, we don't do anything uh, for anybody. Um, you know, so the mother gives the mitochondria DNA. She gives the microbiome. and Which is why know. vaginal births are so important, right? Because that's exactly. Gives, yeah. Marvin Eady's philosophy was, okay, so the microbiome we inherited from our mother, the mitochondria we inherited from our mother. So they actually are sisters that talk to each other. And when things are going wrong in the engine room with gut dysbiosis, you actually send signals to, hey, back off on energy production. We've got a problem down down in the engine room. And it's the signals of postbiotics that actually tell the mitochondria, okay, we're happy down here. Things are running at full speed, you know, full speed ahead, make energy. And as strange a concept as that is, I mean, there's there's been, you know, two billion years of working all this out. And we're just we're naive uh, to think that that five pounds of crap down there is just leftover garbage from our digestive process. And we're now realizing with with every passing year, thanks to the Human Microbiome Project, that this is the most complex organ organism that we could ever imagine. It is a complex rainforest. And, you know, the damage we've done to the most important organ in our body is, you know, is incalculable. And we just were totally unaware. So, and so the go. gasotransmitters are the text message, essentially. Yeah, it's the text message. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's actually called, it's actually been defined as a trans kingdom language. I mean, it's, I mean, talk about Star Wars. Right. Let's talk a little bit about metabolic flexibility, because I think that this term can be a little nebulous, can be a little uh, broad, but I think that you define it really well in the context of the mitochondria. So how do you define metabolic flexibility as it relates to mitochondrial health? Okay, so normally the mitochondria can produce ATP using three substrates. Glucose, number one, sugar, uh, amino acids, proteins, and free fatty acids and or ketones. And for the moment, we, we won't differentiate between the two. But normally those would be they'd arrive for processing in the electron transport chain, uh, not simultaneously. Uh, So, but let's suppose we stop eating. Hopefully we stop eating. 
and hopefully we go to sleep. About eight hours after normally we stop eating, we would pretty much run out of glucose circulating in our bloodstream. We would pretty much deplete glycogen stores, which are the storage form of glucose. And we would shift over to burning free fatty acids and some ketones for our brain. And these would be liberated from our fat cells as insulin would fall after we stopped eating. So it's very much like a hybrid car. Burn gasoline until the gas tank is empty and we recharge the battery, let's call it our fat stores. And then when the gas tank is empty, we start running on battery power, our fat stores. And the ability to shift from burning sugar or protein to burning free fatty acids should actually happen on a dime as soon as insulin levels fall. But for the vast majority of us, we have what's called insulin resistance. And insulin being elevated prevents free fatty acids from being released from our fat stores. So you could be plenty of fat, nice big fat person, and you could stop eating and you would crash and burn uh, as so many people do, uh, fasting or eating a ketogenic diet because you actually can't get to all that fat. So the ability to shift from sugar to fat burning virtually instantaneously actually defines great mitochondrial health. And uh, 80% of us are insulin resistant. And in the new book, there's a really scary paper that I quote, 80% of normal weight people are insulin resistant or metabolically inflexible. 98% of overweight people are metabolically inflexible. And 99.5% of obese people are metabolically inflexible. And it's, it's terrifying. Like, it's terrifying. terrifying. Mm -hmm. And we wonder why, you know, dementia is you know, the epidemic that it is. We wonder why cancer is the epidemic it is. We wonder why heart disease, blah, 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 why diabetes is. Because these in the end are all really diseases of metabolic inflexibility, of mitochondria, unable to shift between fuels. Yeah. How do you, how do you define insulin resistance? Um, is it on a, you know, is it like more than six uh, on a, you know, what, how is, what I yeah. find the more I learn about insulin resistance, the less I know about it. So most labs will say an insulin level of nine or below is where you want to be. Uh, Dr. Dale Bredesen and I say six or below is where you want to be. Uh, I, when I started on myself, I had an insulin level of 16, you know, I was insulin resistant, which wow. makes great sense. I run an insulin now around two. My wife runs an insulin of less than one. I hate her. I can't show off. I know I can't catch her. And you know, we're always, we're always going after this. So, but really a, a, a fasting insulin level, and I, and I say this in the books, I'll say this to anyone who would listen. If I had one blood test to tell a patient their fate, and that's all I got, I got one, you know, one thing, it would be a fasting insulin level. And it just is so powerful predictor of what's going to happen to you. Um, I mentioned this on a podcast this past week. Um, a week ago, I had uh, family members of my pa of my patients who uh, didn't listen to me. Um, both of these people, one a man, one a woman, uh, passed away with metastatic cancer. And for three years, both of these individuals, uh, I've been, they have very elevated insulin levels, 124, 132. And I, every time I see him, I said, look, <clears throat> you don't know it, but this is miracle grow to cancer. And, you know, we've got to do this because I, I said, I don't want to tell you this, but my crystal ball says, you know, you're going to die of cancer. And they go, yeah, right. There's no cancer in my family. 
And both these people died of metastatic, uh, one uh, uh, uterine cancer and one uh, a gastric cancer. And by the time, you know, it was too late. Uh, they both failed chemotherapy, blah, blah, blah. And that's another story. But so the family members were in the office and going, you know, if, if, you know, if only they had listened to you. I remember you telling them that this was their fate. And so anyone who listened, get a fasting insulin level and pay attention to it. Insulin is, is elevated when you're eating too much simple sugars, too much fructose from fruit or high fructose corn syrup, and quite frankly, uh, too much uh, protein. We eat too much protein in this country. Um, so... It's interesting too. I find, you know, you mentioned before people, you can be on the path to insulin resistance and have a normal, you don't have to be obese. Correct. And you could have a normal, you know, BMI. And you, if you're looking, for example, at this fasting insulin, or even uh, I like to look at uh, postprandial glucose. So I will, you know, they'll eat a meal and then we look at their glucose, you know, 30 minute intervals for about two hours. And you can kind of, you can see, and that's why CGMs, like a continuous glucose monitor, I'm a big fan of, because you can see how hard you're beta cell, your pancreatic cells have to work to bring that glucose level um, back down. And from my understanding, and I, I sort of geek out on insulin resistance, like I mentioned, the more I learn about it, the, the less I feel like I know. But what it seems, to, what we seem to understand about it is that it insulin resistance happens in the muscle first. Now you mentioned the brain, big glucose gobbler, and also just by mass, you know, the muscles are also uh, a very big glucose gobbler. But if you have insulin resistance, if you're not active, you know, you're not and, you know, that could be that non-exercise activity thermogenesis, like the walking, we were talking on your podcast, like going for a walk to dinner and back and getting the cappuccino on the, like just having this general walking or things like resistance training, your muscles are also going to be, you know, they have a GLUT4 receptor. They were, that is an insulin dependent, uh, process. They're going to need, uh, you know, if they become insulin resistant, then all of a sudden you have this big glucose sink that's not listening, you know, not listening to insulin. Um, and some of the studies that I've looked at have been able to show that even just one, one resistance training session has been able to almost completely reverse the resistance that they see in the myocyte, in, in the, at the insulin receptor uh, on the, on the muscle cell, which I think is like fascinating and why no, not, not everybody is lifting weights or having some kind of gent where we're moving big muscles, you know, after, after a meal, that's one of the, I know you and I've talked about this before. That's one of the best things that you can do to control your insulin sensitivity is move the glucose into the muscles because then they don't, they don't leave after they're there. That's right. Yeah. I, mean, I, I tell patients that, you know, glucose is basically a salesperson that is trying to sell glucose primarily to muscle cells. Mm -hmm. And it literally knocks on the door and says, hey, uh, this person ate, you know, some great sugar and, you know, open the door. I want to sell it to you. And the muscle says, <laughs> I'm full. I couldn't eat another bite. Go away. And glucose uh, insulin doesn't take that laying down and comes back with, 10 of its friends with a battering ram said, no, you know, you're, you're going to take this. And the, the muscle says, no, there's not any room in here. Go away. And so insulin says, well, look, um, I've got to get rid of this sugar. And uh, this person is going to thank me. I'm going to store it as fat. And the, the more my insulin goes up, the more fat I'm going to store because someday there's going to be a famine and man, you know, I've, I've got your back. I got you covered. But the problem is, as I found out when I was insulin resistance, the higher your insulin level, the easier it is to make fat out of the food you eat. So I could look at a piece of chocolate cake and gain weight. And, <laughs> and so many of my patients, you know, they feel that way. And it's, it's literally, Oh, I, I ate like a bird and, you know, but I keep getting fatter and fatter. Well, it's because we, we have this elevated insulin level because our muscles aren't hungry. And so you're right. If we exercise them, they go, Oh yeah, I'm starving to death. You know, here, come on, Where's doors wide man? open. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why my wife's you know insulin level is less than one, and her muscles go. Oh yeah, come on, right. I'll right. take everything you got. 
And, you know, I really liked, I've heard you on other podcasts talk about fasted workouts. This is one of my favorite ways to work out. Um, I find I just, when I eat, when I've tried it both ways. When I eat, I often feel like I have a brick in my stomach and I can't concentrate on what I'm doing. But just in terms of the metabolic advantage, I think that it gives you, um, you're able to deplete some of the glycogen stores that you have, you're able to tap into the adipocytes, as you're saying, and then your own body, like talk about an amazing design that we have. Like, thank God I wasn't in charge of design because I would have never, we can make our own glucose, you know, like you can take the fat, cleave it, and then the glycerol can become, you know, glucose as well. So I think, yeah, I, um... Yeah, just re- absolutely resonate with with uh, what you're talking about here in terms of insulin resistance, and just in the you know in the you know remaining uh, time that I have with you, I wanted to talk about in the book you talk about these seven deadly energy disruptors. So you have a whole program in the book, which we're not going to get through today. You have to buy the book to to kind of get through that. But let, let's talk about these energy disruptors and how those can impact the mitochondria, as we have, as we've been saying this, you know, maybe insulin resistance and some of these, you know, the oxidative stress and the poor microbiome. What, what are some of the things that we need to be looking out for in our everyday life that can be affecting our capacity for energy production? Well, maybe we'll just do a couple today. Uh, So broad spectrum antibiotics, not only the one we, Broad-spectrum antibiotics have only been around for 50 years, and they were miraculous when they came out. I remember I was in medical school. And the problem is we did not know that not only do broad-spectrum antibiotics kill all bacteria that we think about, they kill our microbiome out. And we still, to this day, use huge amounts of broad-spectrum antibiotics to treat the common cold or a scratchy throat. <laughs> viral, uh, viral infection. Yeah, viral infections. Yeah. And guess what? They don't work, folks. But yeah. uh, <laughs> But our animals are still fed huge amounts of antibiotics. Uh, The largest amount of antibiotics use uh, in the world still is to raise animals, get them bigger and faster. And those antibiotics are in the flesh of these animals. And even there's been some very interesting detective work looking at chickens are supposedly it's illegal to give them antibiotics. But Uh, In some studies, over 60% of free-range chickens still have antibiotic residues. And there's a clause from the FDA that, no, you can't give chickens antibiotics. But if the vet, who, of course, is hired by the big ag company, thinks there's one chicken who might have an infection in a flock of 100,000 in a warehouse, you can give antibiotics to the entire flock because he thinks there's one chicken that's got an infection. And of course, it makes them grow faster. Anyhow, so antibiotics decimate our microbiome and they don't produce the postbiotics that keep our mitochondria going. The second thing I think is really important is uh, non-steroidal and uh, non anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, like Advil, like Aleve. Scarily, The drug companies knew that these cause holes in the wall of the gut. And they were once prescription only. And there was a black box warning that they could only be used for two weeks because they were so dangerous. Now we pop Advil and Aleve like no get out. And it's like swallowing a hand grenade and producing leaky gut. And uh, In the new book, I actually reveal why that happens, but I won't tell you today. Proton pump inhibitors, the antacid drugs that are so popular, like Prilosec, Nexium, and Protonics. Little did we know that proton pumping to make acid in the stomach also is how mitochondria produce ATP. And they pump proteins, uh, protons across the inner membrane of the mitochondria. Little did we know that proton pump inhibitors prevent proton pumping in our heart muscle and in our brain. And that's why people on long-term proton pump inhibitors have a very high incidence of congestive heart failure and memory loss, all because we're actually blocking the mitochondria from doing their job. And that's why there's still a black box warning on all of these drugs that you should never take them for longer than two weeks. Uh, And I see people on them for 10 years. 
Oh, right. don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, your honesty and your transparency reminds me of uh, a conversation I had with Dr. Robert Lustig. Um, he talks in his book, Metabolical, his through line is protect the liver, feed the gut. Um, and he doesn't give, just like you, is very, very happy to call out uh, drugs that are um, going contrary to that philosophy. And I appreciate um, your honesty and your openness here. And I know you talk about fructose as well. Uh, that's one of uh, Dr. Lustig's, you know, main through lines. He talks about human foie gras and um, yeah. you've been, yeah, you've been <laughs> such a wealth of information. Um, and I just, your wisdom is just profound and your energy, you know, you're, that you're seeing patients seven days a week by choice, you know, not because you have to, but because you want to, and you have this, you know, you know, servant's heart, I would say, uh, is, is just goals. I think for many of us in our thirties and forties, uh, and beyond. So beyond, so I think that everybody should pick up a copy of this book, but beyond the book, where can people find out more about you, more about your work? Uh, you know, if you're accepting patients, what that might look like. Yeah, I uh, I have a phenomenal physician assistant that we keep uh, keep the doors open and yeah I see patients six days a week uh, we still see patients you can go to drgundry.com uh, you can go to my uh, supplement and food company gundrymd.com you can find me on the Dr Gundry podcast wherever you get your podcast I've got two YouTube channels Instagram you can find me. Uh, if I don't appear as a email every morning, I've not done my job properly. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so um, hopefully it's easy to find me, find the books wherever books are sold, but please, please, please go to your local bookseller. COVID has destroyed them and uh, they need all the help uh, we can give them. So if you can go to your local bookstore. And I'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes for people. And let's just keep this an open loop and we'll bring you back in March when, uh, when the next book's out. Really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Great. And if, if folks uh, like uh, the current books, wait till you see the next one. It, I'm so excited about it. I can't stand it. Uh, okay. So enough of Wonderful. That. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Doc. All right. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Gundry. And as I do in many of these outros, I wanted to highlight a review that came in that I thought was incredibly important to share with you. The title is called My New Favorite Podcast. Stephanie is a great communicator. After hearing her on another podcast, I went and bought her book and started following her podcast. I just turned 50 and gained the COVID-15 you are not alone in that. <laughs> I never had a problem with my weight, but now that I'm 50, I can't seem to get rid of these 15 pounds. Reading her book and listening to her podcast is definitely helping me not only lose the pounds, but learn so much about my body. Thank you. And this is from uh, Idorado99. That's how I pronounce your name. I hope it is right. Idorado99 from the US of A. Thank you so much for leaving that review. It helps more and more Bettys find the pod and for me to expand my mission to reach women and empower them around making better decisions for their health, whether they are in their reproductive years or they are in perimenopause, menopause, it doesn't matter when, I, as long as I can catch you and teach you a few, you know, a few things about how your body works and so that you can make better decisions, I have done my job. So thank you so much. And if you are feeling like this is something that you might want to contribute to. If you want to leave a review on the pod, I would absolutely love to hear it. You can leave reviews on iTunes or on Apple, and you can also leave ratings both on the iTunes app and as well as Spotify and wherever you're listening to the pod. I think there's always a, an opportunity for you to rate the podcast, but it's iTunes that allows you to leave the review. So I thank you, Bettys, for your time, for spending this time with me today. I bid you adieu and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast, and I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. 